Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's groundbreaking book, In This Together, landed on bookstore shelves with a powerful message. When we work together, we can do absolutely anything. Guidance from 40 women leaders with specific strategies to help women advance their careers makes In This Together even more relevant today, especially with the pandemic's impact on women in the workforce. Take your career to the next level with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's In This Together, now available on audiobook. Download your copy today. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go with a group. Folks, this podcast is brought to you by the Real Leaders Impact Collaborative, our once-a-month virtual impact CEO peer groups who meet to support each other with whatever is keeping them up at night. I joined the group back in September, and if I had to say the one major takeaway that I've received is that to not let things outside business affect your on-court performance. This little change has certainly reflected in our business growth and development. And when our members do well, more lives are transformed. That's what impact is all about. So if you're interested, please email us at info at real-leaders.com. Just say the podcast sent you and you want to speak to someone about the impact collaborative. Again, that's info at real hyphen leaders.com. Enjoy the show. For everyone on LinkedIn, come on over the crowdcast and let's get this show on the road here. Here we go now. In five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is the CEO of My Green Lab. Please welcome Mr. James Connolly. James, thanks for being with us today. Well, thanks for the opportunity, Kevin. Looking forward to it. I'm excited. So I saw the name My Green Lab. Are you a scientist? Are you wear a lab coat? Uh, tell us more about My Green Lab. Uh, well, that's, that's a great question. Um, well, I'm actually not a scientist. And uh, in fact, I'm an architect by training. Um, and I worked in uh, sustainability in the building industry, in the green building industry uh, for a decade. Um, and I actually uh, joined as CEO of My Green Lab um, a little over a year ago. I was serving as a board member previously, uh, really to take the organization and grow and scale our impact all over the world. Uh, previously, I worked uh, growing green building programs and green product certifications um, in, in the building industry, in the building product industry, and uh, was advising the, the founder of My Green Lab, who is a neuroscientist, um, who got fed up with the environmental impact of laboratory research. And she decided to, to step down and pursue other interests. And the board asked me to, to take on the role. So uh, I'm learning a lot uh, about the scientific industry. Um, it's fascinating. Um, there's just a huge uh, amount of environmental impact as well. Um, and a ton of low-hanging fruit where we can make a difference. And My Green Lab's mission is to create a culture of sustainability and science. And I think we're well on our way of creating a bit of a sea change in the scientific industry where sustainability um, is core to what these businesses are thinking about. Interesting, interesting. So tell me about that point when you get called up, essentially. Uh, hey, I want you to help grow the company. What was your initial reaction? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. You know, I think it was, it was certainly a big leap going from 
green building um, into sustainability and science and scientific research. Um, you know, I think the my experience though growing sustainability programs is um, you know a lot of things about sustainability are are similar across industries. Um, it's about getting people motivated first. Uh, helping them understand the problem and then providing them pathways and opportunities where they can really make change. Um, I do think my background and knowledge in certifications really helps. My Green Lab fundamentally offers a number of uh, labs, a, a lab certification, a product certification for lab supplies. So I was knowledgeable about um, the certification landscape. Um, moreover, though, I was frankly really excited. As a board member, I started to learn about the environmental impact of research. Labs use 10 times more energy than a typical commercial office space, uh, four times as much water. Uh, they produce 2% uh, of, of plastic waste. Well, one research study said that it's actually probably much higher. And the global pharmaceutical industry uh, produces 55% higher carbon emissions than the automotive industry. Um, oh. And a lot of people, um, and, you know, frankly, I didn't know that. And so the opportunity to uh, help shine a light on an industry where there's a lot of opportunity for change was, was really exciting. I had no idea about that. Big Pharma, pharmaceutical companies contributing more than automotive companies. It, it's, it's, it's scary to think about that that's the case in this day and age. Now, when business owners and, and people hear the word sustainability, some people perceive it as this big, scary thing to take away profits. How are you approaching these pharma companies, these laboratories, uh, when you're trying to speak to them about this certification process? Yeah, well, great question. I'm, and I'm trying to, you know, I think obviously a, a business has to be profitable uh, but i think you know for most of the business leaders that i work with previously in the building industry where i've worked with a lot of um, uh, technology companies amazon google microsoft the executives understood that figuring out how the company fits into a future uh, zero carbon world is is you know part of what they need to be doing to have a functional business enterprise long term um, uh, and i think that they see that in science as well you know, I think the the prevailing attitude, however, in science and why, you know, frankly, it's been a little bit of a laggard in terms of addressing its own environmental footprint is that the priority was on the research itself. Um, if you're creating a breakthrough for cancer, uh, you're <laughs> creating a treatment for COVID, that treatment maybe is more important than the environmental impact. Um, but what we're finding working with research laboratories is there's a way to do things in a smarter, more research efficient way. And that scientists themselves um, are really personally motivated to reduce the environmental impact of their work. Um, so, you know, we, our organization and one of sort of the unique values that we offer and why we've been able to crack the nut of, of a difficult uh, to address industry in terms of sustainability is we don't uh, ever pretend that the science isn't important or that the science shouldn't have priority. The research should have priority and we provide pathways and tools that are flexible that allow researchers to reduce their environmental impact while still uh, conducting the, the really important world-changing, life-changing work that, that they're doing. So the certification is one aspect of what you do but why did you find, why did my green lab find the certification process to be a great solution? Why did you decide to use it 
is it a way for companies to measure how they're doing, track their uh, progress? What have you found specifically about the certification versus like a, a B lab um, that you yeah. found to, to, to work? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So, you know, a, a huge proportion of the overall impact for a university or a pharmaceutical company is their research labs. Um, so uh, at a major university uh, like Harvard or MIT, something like 60, 50 to 60% of their carbon emissions actually come from their research labs. Um, and so uh, they're difficult to address types of spaces because they're doing very specialized work. There's safety protocols. Um, that are kind of required and baked in. And the way to actually get at change is to engage the scientists themselves mm. in behavior change. Um, and there's a huge amount of low-hanging fruit, uh, things as simple as turning the lights and the equipment off as when you leave, uh, closing the fume hood sash, uh, to making you know changes in how you're designing treatments and bringing them to market that fundamentally reduce the environmental uh, impact of, of creating that treatment that that people can implement. But the reason we our Green Lab certification works so well is it actually engages the scientists themselves. It helps them understand the environmental impact that they're having individually as well as the, the organization overall. And then it provides them best practices and ways that they can drive reductions in, in their work. What have been some of the challenges these scientists have come across? Uh, when it comes to decreasing their carbon emissions or anything that has to do with uh, a healthier work environment? Yeah, well, I think, you know, some of the challenges, I, well, the one we always hear is, oh, it's highly regulated space. There's nothing we can do. Uh, and it's, it's kind of interesting because we find almost invariably uh, when we go in and we do um, a certification for a project, there are things that you can do even in a highly regulated regulated environment, um, highly controlled environment that you can do to reduce environmental impact. Um, one of the big challenges that researchers also have is they're kind of constrained by the instrumentation um, and the products that they can buy. There's tons of single-use plastics. Uh, there's these big uh, pieces of equipment, uh, the two uh, largest energy consuming being ultra-low temperature freezers, uh, which are necessary for uh, storing the vaccine, for example, yeah. autoclaves, which is uh, to design to, to manage and sterilize waste. Um, so we actually launched a new uh, certification program for laboratory products and supplies uh, called the ACT label uh, that, allows, uh, uh, that allows consumers and scientists to buy products that are made in a more sustainable way or that are more efficient. Uh, so they're not constrained or they can actually drive changes within the supply chain of the products that they're buying as well. Very interesting. Okay. So now we know a little bit more about my, my green lab. The audience is, is coming up to date, coming up to speed about the impact of pharma, pharma on carbon emissions, your company helping these, uh, these scientists out and understanding their role in this reduction, how they can use these safe practices. I'm really focused on your transition actually. What was the state of My Green Lab when you took it over? And what were some of the things you've learned from a leadership perspective uh, for to how to galvanize a culture, especially when a new leader uh, takes the takes the reins? Yeah, well, that's that's a great question. Um, you know, first of all, I want to give um, a shout out, just an incredible credit to 
the founder of, of My Green Lab, Allison Paradise, who took this concept and brought it to market and demonstrated that green labs were possible and, and built a community of professionals. Incredible. Uh, the, this organization, you know, completely from the ground up. Um, and so I really uh, had the fortune and, and um, an incredible opportunity. So Allison Paradise, the founder, uh, when she invited me to join the board, she knew the organization was at a period of a transition. Uh, the board and I were working with her to set up the organization to scale uh, because while we're touching some labs, uh, hundreds of labs, there's millions of labs in the world. And if we're really going to uh, meet climate change targets and we're really going to make a dent in this massive mm -hmm. energy consuming, resource consuming industry, we knew the organization had to scale. Uh, so she put in place just incredible bones in terms of the programs. Um, so I, I had the the uh, the opportunity to kind of take those programs and then really think about how they can scale. Um, and you know, starting and getting something going from the beginning sometimes is, is a bit of a different task than scaling it. Um, and scaling it, a lot of the focus is on uh, the operational. Uh, systems, the the HR systems, the people systems, the technology systems, uh, the website infrastructure, um, and the marketing infrastructure, um, and then building. Um, and nonprofits actually, unfortunately, don't generally do a very good job of this. Mm. Um, uh, businesses are more familiar with this concept, but you have to build a sustainable revenue source that allows you to continue to have the funding to add additional people to scale your impact. And so putting in place a sustainable revenue model through grants and sponsorships and how our programs are priced so that we continue to add exceptional people um, and drive and scale our impact was, was one of the, the things that I really focused on uh, first and foremost. And um, I think that's a little bit of a challenge uh, for any organization. Oh, yeah. People get into nonprofits because they want to do the work because it matters. Uh, they don't generally get into them because they want to be thinking about how to build a scalable business model necessarily. Um, and so, you know, making sure that everybody understood the importance and value of that and how a sustainable financial model is going to drive greater impact for the organization long term and better achieve the mission. Um, was was you know kind of the the biggest hurdle we had to get over as an organization, and I think we're really coming out on on a positive end of that. We've added uh, significant new team members. We went from a team of uh, three and a half to a team of close to ten, and we have a, a team re uh, retreat actually coming up here in Seattle, where we're going to cement our organizational values and really hopefully coalesce around a new vision for the organization moving forward to dramatically make a difference in this industry that, that we think is so important to do so uh, for the world and, and for the climate and for the science industry itself. And James, it's a story I keep hearing time and time again, and it's just an inspiring one from social entrepreneurs, from you and Allison, starting with this intention, hey, if we're gonna actually take on this problem that not that many people, including someone who interviews social entrepreneurs on a daily basis, knows about the pharmaceutical waste, let's start with that intention, let's solve that, let's build a model, a scalable model, and as we grow and grow and grow, we solve that problem even more. And I'm curious though, from a leadership perspective, when you have these retreats, and you're trying to, let's say, you start with your values, you're trying to clarify your focus. 
what do you prioritize? Are you prioritizing your operations? Are you prioritizing your people with HR, your marketing? If it's a three-legged stool, which one holds the most weight to you? Yeah, I mean, well, I, I, I think that they're all important, you know, and I think the CEO's role as, you know, the ultimate leader of the organization is to be able to see all parts of the business and how they work together and how they work together in harmony. I would add another one uh, to that, yeah. uh, that relevant to organizations like ours, which is the technical quality of our programs. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, uh, the outcomes uh, of going through our certification process, the integrity of that process, um, that is that is incredibly important to us as well. So, um, you know, it's it's about balancing all those concerns together, and then getting your people systems, your uh, operational, um, financial systems, technology systems, your programs, the actual work that you're doing. Um, and your marketing engine that's driving new interest, which is so important to a social venture because you can have the best programs in the world, but unless you're getting out the world, the word to the whole industry, you're not going to have the impact that you could have. You need to get those all working together uh, through a common purpose. And one of the first things we did as an organization when I uh, started is we, uh, the board and I, as well as our stakeholder community, um, as well as the team, uh, developed a new three-year strategic plan that set out clear, measurable goals um, for what we're trying to achieve. We put them down on paper. We got everybody to provide input on them. Um, and we shared it as broadly as we could uh, with the world so that people knew what our intentions were and what we're trying to accomplish. And I think putting together that strategic plan and getting alignment uh, between both our team and our board and, and our stakeholder community was was really fundamental. And I think that that's been a big part of what's driving uh, what we're seeing now, which is really exponential growth of our programs. And James, I know you're a basketball guy. We talked about this a little bit before the show. <laughs> uh, we're both Hoop Fest players up in, uh, shout out Spokane, Washington. Uh, as a basketball coach, you got to know your players. You, know, you got the point guard who's you know, handles the ball every single time down the court. They got to shoot, they got to drive, they got to dish it out when the time is right. You have the glue guys, the people that might be more defensive, vocal, captains of the team. You've got your forwards, you got your wings. Everyone kind of plays a role, and it's up to that coach, that CEO, that leader to put people in the right seats. How bullish are you on making sure people get in the right seats, prioritize what they're doing, and do you have some type of philosophy on how you like to position the employees in your company? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I mean, I think the the metaphors uh, really apt. I think the maybe one way to continue that metaphor is I think that a lot of um, a lot of founders of organizations and a lot of CEOs, um, not necessarily founders of organizations that kind of get to the like five, 10, 20, 30 person size, um, the 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 CEO is still the star player um, and they're still the one, you know, shooting the threes, the highest score. Um, and I think that my approach to leadership, and this is something that I've been learning a lot um, organizationally, is that you need to be intentionally trying to step back from that leading player role to the coaching role, which is putting people in the right place and being really intentional about it. 
Um, and I think that's a hard thing for a lot of people to do. I've struggled with it in my career. I think probably every leader struggles with it. Sort of the idea, well, I got to be out there. I got to be the one taking the shot. Um, and instead, understanding where you can find people um, to step into roles that that you are taking uh, that might even be much better than you uh, mm. in, a, in a more specialized way and, and likely are much better. That's why you're hiring them. You always want to hire people. Um, that that have skills that you don't necessarily bring to the table. Um, so I think that you know what we're doing organizationally is we're actually mapping out me with our chief operating officer Sam Wright uh, spent some time earlier, which we're going to be talking about at our team retreat, uh, mapping out where the organization is going to be in three years and what are the key roles um, and who do we want in those positions and do we grow people internally into those roles or do we look outside but i think having clarity about where the organization is moving and then filling those roles intentionally to fulfill that long-term strategic vision that you have of the organization is really important uh, sometimes i think people can be super reactive with hiring they're like oh we're really busy with this task. Let's hire somebody to do that rather than thinking about how that fits in the bigger picture and the evolution of the organization overall. Um, and then that allows you to like think about recruiting in a longer term perspective mm. too. Um, you know, if you know, like for us, eventually we're a nonprofit organization, we're going to be adding um, a director of philanthropy, somebody to lead our fundraising efforts long term. We have a long, we, we don't have the funding to hire that person yet, but we will soon. Mm. Um, and we, we can kind of map that out. Uh, so I think it's just being really, really intentional um, about your organization structure, understanding what those roles are, communicating that clearly, and then making sure everybody has a good understanding of their job role and how that job role overall contributes to the, the long-term strategic outcomes of the organization. It's great advice. But I think yeah. Yeah. I have a philosophy that I'm trying to implement, which is you know, figuring out ways that I can, I can step back as a leader and focus on the longer-term strategic issues like hiring uh, rather than, you know, being on on the court, if you will, but we're still small. We're still only ten people, so sometimes I still get it get out on the court, which is which is fun too. That's see, I think that's a great example because I think you know good leaders delegate authority, not tasks. So by taking that next step, that next level, you're you're empowering others versus just telling them what to do. And I think that's it's a big difference between a leader and a manager. And you know, wish the best best of luck for your organization. Seems like you also have the game plan going. You're creating the alignment clear focus, clarity, you mentioned a few times. What does scale mean to you? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's actually something that, that again, we're going to be talking about um, at our, um, our team retreat upcoming. Um, you know, <laughs> the way that a lot of businesses think about scale, right, is like, we want to grow by X percent a year. Um, and I think that more and more, I'm thinking that the way we want to think about scale is rather um, what is the overall size of the industry? What is the environmental impact? And how much do we think uh, we can change it? And how much do we need to change it if we're gonna meet Paris climate agreement targets? Mm -hmm. um, so scale for us isn't number of people or amount of revenue, or maybe even you know the number of labs, although those are really important impact metrics for us, but how are we actually measuring and changing the industry overall and how are we doing so quickly enough uh, to make sure that we avoid the, the worst impacts of climate change 
um, that's that's the scale that we need to achieve, I think, to, to truly achieve our mission. Measuring impact seems to be very difficult for a lot of organizations. Do you guys find it necessary to measure the impact? How are you, how would you measure the impact? And what's your philosophy, I guess, on this quote unquote, if you believe in it, the triple bottom line, people, planet and profits? Yeah, well, I think I think for nonprofits, you know, um, I think you should be applying the same discipline that a, a for-profit company does to measuring your impact in a nonprofit organization. Mm -hmm. And so we're we're very focused. We're a very data-driven organization. Um, we measure everybody engaged with our programs. We uh, use uh, Salesforce, our CRM, to to evaluate our impact, to understand our customer engagement. Um, and then, as I mentioned, one of the other things we're doing is we're doing an overall carbon impact uh, of the life science industry study. And so the, the study that I referenced said that 55% of uh, uh, biotech and pharma has 55% higher carbon emissions than automotive, higher intensity. Right, right, right. We, we scaled that up to the entire biotech industry, and it turns out that's consistent. Uh, the entire biotech industry is is 55% uh, higher carbon emissions than the entire automotive industry in terms of intensity um, uh, carbon used per unit of revenue. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that for us, we need to find ways that we're measuring impact to ensuring either companies or the industry overall uh, can uh, can reduce their carbon impact. Uh, two levels that that will meet the Paris Climate Agreement. I mean, this is what we all as a as a global community have to be focused on. How do we get to zero carbon early enough that that we avoid the worst impacts of climate change? Um, so you know that's that's an overarching mission and purpose for me. The biotech and pharmaceutical industry is a huge part of the footprint, um, and I think they're really excited and interested in changing. Um, trying to think in your question on triple bottom line, you know, what we're finding is there is just a myriad of benefits to organizations to be pursuing sustainability, save energy, save water, create a healthier workspace for the people that are working for you, align with your investors' demands. Um, and younger people want to work at companies mm. that uh, prioritize sustainability. So if you want to be in uh, biotech and pharma or, or a top university, you want the top students, you want the top researchers, uh, sustainability has to be core to your mission. Um, so I think there's there's just su such a clarity now in the industry that this is the right way to go. Uh, but people just need to know how to do it. They need to have the frameworks and tools and, and that's what we provide. You know, that's spot on. Uh, sustainability has to be core to your mission. What about the organizations where it's not really core, where they don't really, you know, they'll implement, uh, let's say, uh, energy savings. They'll go to solar and they'll go to renewables. Uh, they'll save energy and it'll be efficient and they'll reduce their carbon emissions. But it's not really core to who they are. It's a great thing to say, to market to people, to bring in other people. But are you finding that if companies don't go all in, don't go all in on sustainability, that it's much more difficult in the long run to continue to incorporate that into their values, into their people, into their products, into their services? Yeah, that, so that's a great question. You know, it's kind of interesting. There's 
um, actually a lot of research to show that there's long-term uh, business value, both in profitability and share price to companies that truly embrace sustainability. And if you look at some of the best performing companies around, sustainability is now a core part of their mission. And maybe that those companies, however, just when they do something, they do it right, including sustainability. Um, and, and that's just part of the, the, the ethos of the organization. Um, however, I would take a little bit more of a pragmatic approach. Mm. You know, some of these companies are that we work with and I've worked with in the past, they are big behemoths. They, you know, it's changing the direction of an aircraft carrier. And sometimes for us, uh, like a green lab program, we'll start with just one interested scientist and that interested scientist will get their lab interested and they'll do a green lab certification. That'll get, uh, that'll get recognized by, uh, uh, by the leadership of that organization or by the CSR team. And then three years later, they have a huge program that's having a massive impact. So sometimes you just got to start where there's interest and build from there. And, you know, in a way that that could be a little bit of greenwashing. I have a friend, uh, the former sustainability director who started their sustainability program at Alaska Airlines that like to refer to these as random acts of greenness. Huh. Um, and I think you can get stuck in that trap, like creating a couple green teams, slapping some solar panels on uh, may feel good, uh, but there, it needs to be a bigger strategic conversation for the organization to really realize the benefits. But sometimes it takes a few small actions to get people excited and interested. And, and we've seen that happen. Mm. And the mission of My Green Lab is to create a global culture of sustainability and science. So a big part of our work is engaging uh, individuals and getting the whole company to have a culture of sustainability. So it's integrated into their core values as an organization. It's part of their strategic plan and it's part of the culture of how they operate. And that's when you get the, the most benefits from, from sustainability, in my opinion. And that's what I've seen. It, it and let's talk about that a little bit more. I mean, for people listening to this, that is such a difficult task to change the culture of an organization, whether it's small or big. Like you mentioned these aircraft carriers. I, here's another analogy. You think about with these big behemoths, they're like battleships. And if you're going to change the, the culture, it's going to take a long time for them to make that turn. But if they make that turn, you know, it's a much greater force. Versus a jet ski, a smaller organization, they can do a, a quick little pivot, make the turn and, and be on that route to sustainability a little bit faster. What have been some of the best practices that you've seen, uh, big behemoths, such as these battleships that can make these changes? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So, you know, there was, I used to work at the International Living Future Institute, uh, which uh, has an amazing set of programs uh, to drive change in, in the building industry, um, as well as, as uh, manufacturing industry for building okay. products. Um, and uh, we used to use a metaphor, and I'm a sailor as well, of a trim tab. And a trim tab is something that goes on the very back of your rudder, and it's just a tiny oh, little right, flap. Right tiny little flap. And when it turns, it creates a swirl of water with, uh, through the Bernoulli principle, pulls the entire rudder around. So a giant container ship essentially can be shifted uh, by, you know, a hand crank, very, very little amount of effort. And so what we tried to do at ILFI is find kind of those strategic intervention points in the industry where a little push could have a dramatic impact 
um, on the industry overall. For example, um, uh, I started a program um, called Declare uh, with a number of others. And in fact, uh, our chief operating officer, Sam Wright, uh, who uh, works with me now at My Green Lab, helped start this program with me at ILFI, where we asked the building industry to disclose the ingredients of their building products. And that seems like it like straightforward, normal thing to do, but no company was doing it at all. Um, but we got one or two companies uh, that were brave enough to be honest about what's in their products, um, disclose it to the industry. And all of a sudden it became the expectation within five years, you know, pretty much every company knew it was going to have to disclose the ingredients in its product if it was going to be taken credibly uh, by the industry. So mm. you got to find kind of those key uh, leverage points. And, and we think those key leverage points in biotech and pharma at My Green Lab are the labs themselves. Um, if we can get the researchers and scientists interested in sustainability, provide actionable pathways where they can make change, celebrate those that are doing so, um, so that their peers look to them, uh, then all of a sudden, you know, all these companies are, are competitive and you can take advantage of a virtuous cycle here where if AstraZeneca talks about its major program where it's doing green labs all around the world, you know, its, it's uh, peers are going to be looking at it um, and they're going to follow in their footsteps. And labs are such an incredible space, too, because then we can get at the products that are being purchased um, mm. in a lab. And, and there's a huge environmental impact for the products that are purchased. So if we can get the lab interested in sustainability, they can buy more sustainable products. And then if we can get a culture of sustainability integrated fundamentally into the organization as these companies are designing new treatments, uh, as they're developing uh, new things to bring to the market, sustainability can be baked in um, at the outset. So for us, that's our trim tab. That's our, our key leverage point where we think we can really shift these companies in a positive direction. And if there's one thing people have learned from this these past two years, is they want to know where these things are coming from how they're made, what is the transparency of these labs, which I find so interesting. And I think, you know, stay on that uh, metaphor of these ships. I live out here in San Diego and my brother lives up in Newport. And if you look out in the ocean, there's about 30 big cargo ships staying there. People are starting to figure out where their supplies are coming from, where their packages are coming from, where they're made, how they're made. How do you see an increasing role in transparency in terms of consumer knowledge? Do you think consum conscious consumers and consumer knowledge are going to help shift the change of cultures in organizations, help shift the change of transparency for how products, services, buildings are made, all of the above? Absolutely. Um, yeah. And it's just, I keep returning to the retreat because I feel like a lot of these themes are, are things that we're planning to focus on. Uh, but transparency is is something that's kind of core to our work um, here at My Green Lab. We have our uh, label for laboratory products. It's the first, uh, the premier eco label for laboratory products called ACT, which stands for Accountability, Consistency, and Transparency. Um, and you have to shine a light on the problem to know how to solve it. And you have to uh, be able to put information in the hands of uh, consumers. So I, I mentioned to you the Declare label and building products. 
Um, transparency works in a powerful way. It not only helps consumers then be like, hey, I don't want a product with X toxic chemical in my home. Uh, it's funny, a company, when they start putting together their label and they're like, ooh, that one doesn't sound great. A lot of these companies didn't even know what was in their own products that they were selling until they really dug into their supply chain. So transparency allows everybody to make better decisions both internal to the company as well as to consumers buying uh, more sustainable products. So I think transparency is, is just fundamental for transformation of the industry overall because it allows people to make better decisions and then it allows the market, you know, the, the positive aspects of the market to take hold in a virtuous cycle. So James, how far out do you think we are from a personalized consumer product world where consumers are looking at the label every almost every consumer is looking at the label understanding where they're where it's coming from and understanding its impact both on the environment while also on its energy use and, and also in let's say internally in the company yeah well i think i think you know pretty quickly the carbon impact of products is going to be pretty apparent like I believe Unilever made a statement that they're going to have a carbon label for all of their products. Um, so you can begin to compare products and understand the carbon impact. Um, mm. However, I, I think it's asking a little bit too much of consumers to say that then they have to spend hours researching and understanding that this is the more sustainable solution. Uh, the responsibility really should be with the manufacturer um, that's publishing this data. And when they're publishing it, understanding how they relate to their peers and how they could be doing better so they can be offering better op better options to consumers. Um, so, you know, I think it's coming quickly in terms of, you know, carbon, uh, understanding of carbon impact of products in a number of different industries from laboratory products to building products to consumer products. Um, but I think the, the benefit of transparency is not just so a consumer can make better decisions. It's, it's really that internal uh, positive feedback loop that creates and continuous improvement for the company that they know they want to do better if they're benchmarking against their peers and, and they want to improve. So let's talk about zero carbon. Let's talk about trends. What trends do you see or what do you think are coming in terms of how businesses will need to react or what will force businesses to take account of their carbon emissions? Is there a carbon tax coming? Are there carbon dividends coming? How do you see it? Yeah, um, well, <laughs> would love to see that in the US. I think um, I think that in the absence of uh, a lot of uh, policy and legislative leadership on this issue in the US, companies are just moving forward and organizations are moving forward on their own. Um, you know, in, in the building industry, you know, most of the big organizations we used to work with had zero carbon targets by, you know, 2030 or sooner. Um, the biotech and pharmaceutical industry is 100% waking up to this. Um, and in fact, uh, pretty much all of the major players now have either a science-based reduction target uh, or a zero carbon target. And the, the targets are getting better. Um, one of the reasons I think it took them a little bit longer in this industry is, is they're really, really particular about setting targets. And I think companies really do work diligently to achieve them. I think there was a lot of zero carbon targets thrown out before people really had much idea how to do them in other industries and they're playing catch up. Um, uh, so I think that voluntary drive uh, 
particularly the UN Race to Zero uh, and the upcoming conference, um, the Conference of Parties COP26 in Glasgow is going to really show, you know, any significant company. I mean, the, the impact of climate change now is so apparent to all of us. Every We see it in the news every day. The most recent IPCC report uh, said that we have a code red for humanity. And I think any responsible company is going to have a zero carbon target that they're serious about uh, quickly, um, and they're going to be working to achieve it. And I think that will actually outpace even uh, regulatory requirements. Not to say that regulatory requirements aren't important, because we then need to bring you know, the stick behind. We have to have the carrot and the stick to make sure people uh, that the laggards actually follow up and meet these requirements. But I'm just seeing a lot of energy and excitement. Companies are setting aggressive targets. There's new innovations, technologies coming online. Um, and I think they're really gonna work hard to achieve them. Um, um, I like to joke with my friends sometimes. It seems like humans are, uh, we're really we're really good at working under a deadline. And the deadline's here. Um, and I think people recognize that we need to we need to get out of our seats and make something happen right away. And, and I'm seeing that with pretty much every company I work with, big and small, uh, across multiple industries. It's interesting. And there's two things I got out of that. One is I've been finding, I'm sure you have as well, is like when you can create comparables, it's much easier for the consumer to make a decision. So if you are working for an environment that's uh, renewable energy, or you're going to invest in a property that has renewable energy versus one that doesn't, they're the same building and one's going to be cheaper for energy and one's not, you're going to go with the, the cheaper renewable energy 10 out of 10 times. The other thing I'm thinking about is you said it's code red, it's here. And I don't know where I stand on this because I, I just like, can humans do it? And I, I have a very optimistic belief, and I think we do. I think we have the people to turn it around. But dealing with nature is is incredibly difficult. And you look at the hurricanes that have happened, and I've got a story real quick, if you will, James. This is actually comes from last night. I, have, I knew a guy that came after Hurricane Katrina, and he was on the relief efforts. And the EPA, you talk about re regulations. The EPA had oil tankers that had to go store their oil when a flood was warning happened into a larger container. Why? They didn't want the tankers going back out into the ocean, damaging the environment. The problem is you have to have electricity to take that oil out or the, the gasoline, the oil out. So therefore, transportation was much more difficult. The choppers that had life relief had to go much further into Mississippi because the oil tanker that had all the oil that was st stored needed electricity to release it out. So we are learning from these mistakes and innovation will happen that way as well. Do you think that if we were to, as a society, especially in America, China, India, actually go to zero carbon, do you think there would be a difference in storms like these? Well, I mean, if you look at the, the research, in the most recent IPCC report, a lot of the climate change impacts that we have are baked in. Um, and so we're not going to reverse uh, the impacts of global climate change on a short time horizons, maybe not in our lifetimes, frankly, but we will long term, uh, I believe. Um, but our opportunity now is to avoid the worst impacts. And if we think that the hurricanes and the fires occurring and the flooding in Europe and China are bad now, um, you know, there's there's a certain tipping point where 
there's a cascading uh, series of, of, of a vicious cycle of, of climate change that just gets worse and worse. Um, so, you know, we really have a moment here to uh, redirect the course of, of human history. And we've, we've risen to big occasions before. As a society, you know, we cracked the atom. We uh, were, you know, we, we figured out how to transplant hearts. We sent a man to the moon. We'll maybe send one to Mars. So we can rise to big occasions. This is the most important occasion of, of our generation uh, for our society. And it's it's absolutely time to, to step it up. And, you know, we have the potential. We have millions of billions and trillions of dollars in investment capital going into new clean technologies. Everybody's awake and they're aware. They're working towards it. The next generation of, of individuals, uh, climate change is, is, is core to their values. Um, so I think we'll we'll tackle it, but we're unfortunately going to be in for a little bit of a rough ride because things are probably going to get worse before they get better. Um, long term, I am really excited about uh, new technologies, carbon sequestering technologies. Mm. Um, uh, excited about companies like Interface that are coming up with uh, carpet tiles that are actually made uh, that are carbon negative. They're actually sequestering. I think they call it carbon positive, but they're sequestering carbon each time you buy a product. Um, so we got to get to zero. And then frankly, we need to get beyond. Uh, we need to get beyond zero and, and get uh, so that we're actually pulling carbon out of the sky um, as, as quickly as possible to deal with these issues. But unfortunately, there's a little bit of a baked in issue that we're going to have to deal with our generation to make sure the next generation um, uh, has a world that they can live in. Definitely. That's a great answer. And I think maybe a better question is, will we do it? And we have the people like you, you your company, other organizations, social entrepreneurs, they're thinking past just today. But then I guess the distinction I was trying to make was people solving and reacting to the problems that's actually happening today, such as hurricane relief. And how many more times are we going to have to experience something like this until we go, okay, let's, let's, you know, make sure we can try to do everything we can to prevent something like this from happening again. And that's just such, why do you think that's so difficult for people to grasp? Is it short-sightedness? Is it short-term thinking? What do you think it is? Yeah. I mean, unfortunately people are motivated by the things that impact them. And so, you know, we have a hard time understanding the long-term impacts. It's kind of funny though, you know, the way, like one of the reasons I've really been enjoying working in the biotech and pharmaceutical industry is these companies understand doing things that are very capital intensive, mm. that take a very long period of time to yield results. Mm. Um, and, you know, the business community, I think also, um, although, you know, there can be a lot of short-sightedness and quarterly reporting concerns and things like that, um, the investment community, at least, uh, is really starting to understand, you know, that they need to be encouraging companies to take a long-term viewpoint. Um, and I think that, you know, we all are, we're educated in a way, and the, and the next generation is educated in an even better way about climate change and environmental impact and why it's important. So they're going to come into the world with a much more long-term viewpoint than, than the previous generation or our generation had. And I think that's really positive. Um, yeah, it's kind of a tricky one. You're talking about climate adaptation to, you know, uh, we used to joke around me and my sustainability nerdy friends and call climate adaptation, like giving up, oh shoot, I guess we'll just have to adapt. But it's not really that because the reality is a lot of this is baked in. So we do have to adapt. We have to become more resilient while at the same time we're driving towards net zero. And I absolutely do think we can do it. And 
you know, um, I'm going to be part of the net zero conference, the eighth annual, it's been growing exponentially, just the concept of net zero. When I started at the living building challenge, the idea of net zero buildings was like wild, crazy idea. Uh, now it's mainstream, uh, you know, net zero is, is, uh, a mainstream concept. And personally, I have some challenges with how the people use it and they need to be more rigorous with the definition of it. Uh, but I think we are going to achieve it. It's it's coming on the common lexicon. It's part of every corporate strategy now. The UN Race to Zero is pulling in uh, huge amounts of our global economy into this effort. Um, so I, I definitely think we can do it. Um, uh, to answer your question, I think we will do it and we have to. We, we really don't have any other choice. James, I think it's going to take a great deal of leadership. So let's bring this home, James Connolly. What is your definition of a real leader? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think the the metaphor that we are talking about um, uh, before, I think, is is really apt for me, um, and it's is something that I've matured as a leader that I I am working to embody more and more. Um, you know, you don't need to be the score, the one doing every single keynote, uh, the one uh, making every deal, convincing every uh, person. Uh, what you really need to be as a leader is within an organization, facilitating that organization to be successful, supporting and bringing in the right players. And then, you know, the work that we do, systemic change in an industry, your organization also needs to be supporting the movement. Um, and it's not about you as an individual leader. It's not even about your organization. It's about the change and impact that you're able to have in the role and how you support and enable uh, the industry and the community to to change. So, um, you know, I think a real leader needs to to understand um, uh, how to to be humble and take the back seat. Um, and that's something that that I'm learning more and more and how we facilitate uh, how I facilitate individuals within my organization to be successful, and then how we as an organization facilitate. Uh, the the organizations and, and partners and community that we work with to go out and create the change. Um, that's how we're truly going to be successful long-term. Um, so I think it's, it's certainly being the coach rather than the star player. Um, that's, that's what a true leader that has lasting impact. And if you look at the literature of, of companies that have created massive change and impact long-term um, and social movements as well, the, those are the type of leaders that you see. For James Connolly, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, be the coach instead of the player, support the movement, and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, James. Thank you. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast with James Connolly. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did now, folks. It's time to open it up for a few questions. And James, we had one fly in earlier, and that is, how can people know more about ACT and your eco-labels? I like this. Yeah, so great question. So ACT is, um, our website is act.mygreenlab.org. So you can check it out online. It has both information about the program as well as our database of, of labels, of laboratory products. I think the approach is actually applicable to, to things outside of lab products. So hopefully it inspires other industries as well to evaluate and provide accountability, consistency, and transparency 
so that consumers can both make the right decisions and companies can understand how to benchmark themselves appropriately. James, I don't see any other questions uh, flying in right now, but we'll take some time. Don't, don't all go at once, people. Don't all go at once. James, I do have one question on a leadership personal level. We're doing a similar thing. We're having a team retreat coming up here shortly as well in Oregon, actually. So still in the Northwest. But my question is this, how are you presenting this to your team? What's your plan of action when you come into this meeting to get people on the same page? Well, it's a really good time to ask that question. <laughs> it kicks off tomorrow. Um, so actively working with our, our chief operating officer today to, to craft that and met yesterday with our, our chief uh, sustainability officer. Um, you know, I think one of the things is, you know, frankly, this year, there's just been incredible successes we've had. The organization is growing and evolving. Uh, we just got named as a, a key outcome for the UN race to zero for the pharma sector. And we think that's going to uh, spell dramatic growth. So we want to take an opportunity to see how far we've come. Um, and then from that basis, that grounding of, of, you know, the confidence to see that we can do big things that, that maybe people didn't think you could do before um, set our intentions uh, for the next year. Um, and, one of the ways we want to do it, just as I was mentioning to you when you talk about scale, is um, what is the scale that we need to be at to achieve the change that we want to see in the world? Mm. Um, how do we set our goals based upon the impact that we need to have uh, to avert you know, the worst impacts of climate change and these other environmental issues? Although I think climate change is, is first and foremost in many people's minds right now. Um, and, and how are we then setting truly ambitious goals uh, to, to get us closer to that, that long-term solution that we need to be providing the industry? That's very helpful. Yeah, I, I like that. It's almost like a theory of change. Start at the end, work backward, or, or thinking at the exit point and trying to figure out how to get there. We had another question flying, James, and that is, who are some of the leaders you look up to? who have contributed to growing social movements and organizations. Yeah, this is great. And uh, I'm here in Seattle. One of my my mentors um, is Dennis Hayes, uh, who's been a friend. Um, uh, he's now the president of the Bullet Foundation, but previously he was the founder of Earth Day. Um, and Earth Day, I think, really brought <laughs> environmentalism onto the, the, the consciousness of, of the entire world in a way that nothing ever had before. Uh, and, you know, me and him used to kind of talk about what that meant for my previous work at Living Future Institute and the things that we've discussed, I, I think, go into my work now at, um, uh, at My Green Lab. But, you know, essentially he sparked a, a social movement that went way behind beyond himself. And if you think of Earth Day, you just think of Earth Day, right? Uh, you maybe don't even know that that Dennis Hayes was was the founder, along with Senator Gaylord Nelson. Um, and I think that that type of leadership, creating that enduring legacy, and then Dennis went on to do um, other incredible things. Um, uh, his foundation uh, built, uh, or the foundation that he's the president of, uh, built the first uh, commercial living building, demonstrating that net zero was possible at scale, that you could do it in a way that makes made money and you know that was my office for five years while i was at the living future institute and we had people fly in from 
all over the world, <laughs> you know, uh, real estate developers from China, policymakers um, uh, that then took that example of uh, a building and have applied it. And, you know, I think that building in large part sort of put net zero energy and net zero on the map in a way that, that no other project has. Um, so he's, he's certainly somebody uh, that I look up to a great deal and, and hope that, that I have the opportunity to even have maybe a, a tiny fraction of the impact that he's had on the world. You know, just another example of a real leader, a pioneer, uh, now inspiring other real leaders to continue and, and give the gift that keeps on giving. James, where can people find more information about My Green Lab? Awesome. So you can find uh, more information about My Green Lab just on our website, mygreenlab.org. Um, you know, if you're a research scientist, you're interested, please do reach out. We have great programs that anybody can get involved in. Uh, we're building a community, a global network of Green Lab ambassadors. So if you work in science or support those that work in science, it's a great program that you can get involved in. Um, yeah, so that's that's a blessed place to reach out. And I, I would say just encourage anybody also, if they're interested in the work that I'm doing, uh, to reach out to me personally or, or they are interested in sustainability, environmental um, environmental activism and, and corporate sustainability and, and how zero carbon is sort of transforming the space. You can you can always email me too. Super easy. James at mygreenlab.org. Love it, James. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. And appreciate all everyone who tuned in on LinkedIn and here on Crowdcast. Folks, if you want to hear the full episode, go and hit that link in the description after you visit mygreenlab.org and subscribe to the Reader's Podcast. Also, folks, what really helps this show out is if you would leave a review. There's a link in there in that chat box. If you leave a review, let people know what to think and what they can expect when they land on the channel. That's it from me. Thanks for being a Reader, folks. And always, keep it real. Thank you. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. And before we go today, I just want to make sure that you are all aware that we have now launched our new Real Leaders membership. If you want to get access to all of Real Leaders Magazine, private member-only events, and free courses online, hit the link in the show notes and enter in coupon code PODCAST20 to receive 20% off a 100 dollar a year subscription hit the link in the show notes enter in coupon code podcast 20 to receive access to all of real leaders to get you to the next level thanks for listening to this episode and always keep it real